and the summer blockbuster season is over, so it can only be time for Bloodbath and Beyond's Summer Movie Roundup. The summer's got 12 weeks. We've got 12 movies to review. Uh, I'm Casey Mitchum. This is Burton Cody. And here we go. So, we saw a lot of movies this summer, but there's very little overlap in the movies that Bert and I saw. And we didn't see every movie this summer. No. Uh, in fact, I was really picky about going to the theater at all this summer. I, I saw maybe four or five movies, uh, which is much lower than I usually do. But also, it, it really spared me from seeing a lot of movies that I would have no- typically walked out miserable from. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think in the interest of uh, building up to the to the things that we really enjoyed, why don't we take this list from worst to best movies? That, so let's just start with movies we really didn't enjoy. And as a as a disclaimer here, uh, we we tr- we're going to try to since these are so new, we're going to try to avoid spoilers where we can. But inevitably, some are going to spring up here. Um, in a couple of particular films. To explain to everybody at home uh, why this particular film is bad, I might have to spoil it a little bit. Like Star Trek, I'm sorry. Sure. I'm so sorry. And Elysium. But, but fair warning. They were bad. You know, it's... Why don't you... Well, you know, I didn't see either of those, so why don't you start right there? All right, then. Um, first movie was Star Trek Into Darkness and... Once you just look at that title, you know something's wrong. Because now the Trek in Star Trek is a verb. It's a very expensive-looking movie. It's flashy. It's got the J.J. Abrams slickness, seal of well, approval. Let me, ask, let me ask you then, because uh, I didn't see either of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek films. Yeah. So is you know where did you stand on the first one? The first one is actually very entertaining, and it's a hypercharged version of the original Star Trek movies and and the, just and the TV show in general like every character is just a supercharged version of what you saw years ago now with the new one it's kind of like all the problems that were just kind of there in the first one but you were willing to forgive because it was very entertaining they're all a little more apparent the problems it's not great science fiction it's like the science fiction which has always been the emphasis of Star Trek, has kind of been set aside, and it's more about action-adventure now. I know that uh, one of the... And we've mentioned spoilers before, but this was kind of the spoil, the big spoiler that wasn't. Uh, I, but I know that building up to the movie, there was kind of review embargo. They didn't want anybody to talk about who, who the villain of the movie really was. But even as someone like myself, I, I know nothing about Star Trek. I... I, I saw reruns of Next yeah. Generation after like Batman the Animated Series when I, you know was off for the afternoon, but otherwise I don't have any Trek experience, and even I knew that it was going to be Khan because that's the only villain I know. Khan is kind of the he's the he's one of the few villains in all of well like the main Star Trek series that's just a villain all into himself. He's not like the Cleons where it's an entire planet. Or the Ferengis, or the Romulans. So who were the bad guys in the first film? Khan is just iconic because of the... Or I shouldn't say iconic. That word's overused. But uh, he's the most well-known because of the William Shatner line from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And Khan was a character established on the original si- series in the 60s. And he was a bad guy in the episode called Space Seed. And he's like on a 
this derelict spacecraft frozen that the Enterprise uh, recovers. And it turns out he's this 300-year-old Superman, genetically engineered. But then it turns out he has evil intentions. He wants to take the Enterprise for himself and murder Captain Kirk. But uh, the crew is the wiser to his plans, and they exile him onto another planet, which leads to the plot of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is one of just the best sci-fi movies ever made, in my opinion. And uh, Ricardo Montalban's performance in that is pretty acclaimed. Oh, he's terrific in the role. He's such a great bad guy. He's He's got this swagger about him, but he's he wears like this Mad Max-ish looking outfit. And he's got that silver mullet. Yeah, he's got that uh, silver mullet and the. Well, in the '60s show, he wore he wore like this Indian prince outfit, and now he's all Mad Maxed out, in uh, Ratha Khan. Now this new one then... has Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm sorry, spoiler mm-hmm. alert. Benedict Cumberbatch is Khan, but it, that's the spoiler everybody knew. Everybody knew he was Khan. And I, and I I believe some of the offense that I saw some people take to this movie was that. This was a character, a villain, you know, this Captain Ahab quoting guy, but he traditionally been played by non-white actors. Well, really just one, and that was uh, Montalban. Okay, well, Montalban made it so much his own then that people were really Yeah, it's a little odd to see Benedict Cumberbatch, who's, you know, extremely white in English, play Khan. It, It does not fit him at all, I think. I think he was miscast. Uh, I think he's a good actor otherwise. And the funny thing is that this movie would have worked a lot better had it not been for all the con stuff that takes over about halfway through. The movie as it stands is uh, its kind of this Iraq war allegory. It, it deals with some of the events of the last movie where uh, there's a crazy federation, um, I don't know, admiral, who wants to really militarize Starfleet. Because in the last movie, there was this Romulan spacecraft, enormous, and it was able to blow up whole planets. It was very Death Starry. And that character is played by Peter Weller, the admiral in this movie. Uh, there's this kind of terrorist bombing on Earth, and it's done by Khan. And next thing you know, all of the uh, Starfleet like commanders, one of them happens to be, two of them happen to be uh, Kirk and Spock, they're in a room together, and it's a scene that's kind of like Godfather 3. This may be the only time I reference Godfather 3 as being a better movie than something. Um, <laughs> where where uh, there's there's like a, a floating, uh, there's a ship outside, and it just mows all of the admirals, mow most of them down, except for the ones that are important to the story, like Kirk Spock and Peter Weller. And then that leads to this whole little um, sequence on a Cleon planet, I forgot the name. And they redesigned the Cleons in this movie. Really? Uh, which doesn't make any sense, because the the plot of the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie is that the timeline's been changed. It's a time travel story. But that doesn't mean the Cleons would look totally different. I mean, when I first saw it, I didn't really care. But, you know, the more I think about it, I realize how useless and pointless that was. It doesn't make any sense. The movie itself... Is just, it's like they took all of the science fiction and storytelling out, and they just left in the actiony bits. There's, there's almost always a shot of something exploding, people running, or both. 
or, or like running and shouting like the the movie opens like the very first shot of the movies i think kirk and mccoy running out of like some uh alien temple like it's very like indiana jones-ish in a way it's not it's not star trek i mean kirk has always been like this two-fisted kind of guy but he's never been indiana jones you know I don't know that I've ever seen any character in a pre-J.J. Abrams Star Trek run. See, they can teleport everywhere, you know? And also, this movie introduces a really stupid plot device in that Khan has a magical blood that can cure any ailment if it's injected into you because he's genetically engineered. He's Superman. Mm. Um, that will come into play later in the movie somehow. I wonder how. Naturally. All right. Once Khan is introduced, it goes through like this sort of... It's another problem I have. And and it's not just Star Trek that's done this lately. It, it's, it was the last James Bond picture that did this. It's the, the Dark Knight uh, shtick where the bad guy is this evil genius who's been captured and he's in like this... Know, he's, he's incarcerated where all the good guys are and he's all alone, but somehow he has this brilliant, elaborate scheme to break out almost kill everybody. This has become really widespread, too. I mean, not just in the movies you talked about, but even in the first movie we reviewed, The Last Stand. Yeah. Uh, the last... All these extremely elaborate villain breakouts and villains that can plan 45 steps ahead beyond all probability. Yeah. Back into Star Trek Into Darkness. It, it introduces um, Carol Marcus, who, if, if you know anything about the continuity of the show, that be- she becomes... Captain Kirk's wife. And she has nothing to do in this movie. The actress and the character, they have nothing to do. And there's this gratuitous shot in the movie of just uh, her standing in her underwear and she's got like this Victoria's Secret model body. And that really upset a lot of people. I mean, that's understandable, but I, I've always wondered why people weren't more upset about it just being a bad movie. And uh, recently at a poll among Star Trek fans, this was voted the worst Star Trek movie, which I can understand. It's even worse than Final Frontier, which sucks. Uh, See, now, I don't know, man. I saw Star Trek Nemesis. (laughs) I I can't tell you why, really. One of my high school, somebody I knew in high school dragged me to it. And I, I remember nothing about it except being miserable. Well, this was a pretty miserable experience, too. And J.J. Abrams, God bless him, the man cannot resist his lens flare stuff. I mean, sometimes it looks really pretty, though. So it it comes and goes, but more often than not, it's it's like it's self-parody. Like, he just does it too much. Just imagine that lens flare off a lightsaber. It's coming, man. Yeah, and the last act of this movie becomes more or less a Wrath of Khan remake and an inferior one at that. It it takes out even some of the exact dialogue from Wrath of Khan and a major character uh, dies in this movie and which happened in, at the end of Wrath of Khan and it doesn't have the same emotional pull because when it happened in Wrath of Khan those are all that's a movie about aging. That's one reason they brought back an old villain. They were using the old cast from the show. They were using the old cast from the show. They've been around for a couple of decades. The attachment's just not there. It's it's not there. The emotions they wanted aren't there. And it was clearly 
uh, Lindelof, J.J. Uh, Abrams just not caring. They just wanted spectacle with Star Trek characters. I mean, this is so far removed from Star Trek. So by the time it was over, I pretty much threw my hands up and went, that's it. It just killed Star Trek. And I think that's why fans voted this to be the worst Star Trek movie because of how anti-Star Trek it is. Mm. You almost can't even consider it to be among it. And it's just... Like, a- it's, like it's clearly not a movie being made for, like, long-term Trek fans. It's a movie to be made to attract an entirely different kind of audience. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's also just a bad movie with just... It's poorly written. And maybe not poorly written, but it was like it was written in a hurry. I mean, the movie ends with, like, this... The Enterprise crashes, and there's, like, this elaborate foot chase sequence, and all this rage, and it feels like something out of a completely different movie. And then I realized that was the scene I think Damon Lindelof rewrote, because they couldn't have, they couldn't think of a, of a better ending. Um, so, I would have to say avoid Star Trek Into Darkness, even if you liked the first one, which I did. I, on, on the plus side the cast that they had for the first movie, which was so perfect as younger versions of the classic characters. It was so good. Like, Kirk is Kirk. Spock is fantastic. Uh, Zachary Quinto plays me. He's great. Um, Judge Dredd, Carl Urban. Carl Urban, all right. He plays McCoy. He's great. Zoe Saldana is a perfect Uhura. Um, So So the casting for the core is still strong. It's still very strong. Um, and that's really, that's really the best thing about this movie. And that's something they did, what, five years ago. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, well, then let's jump to the next movie, because I'm a little, I hadn't seen this movie either, but I was a really big fan of Neil Blomkamp's District 9. I was so too. I'm, I'm a bit disappointed to hear that this is among your least favorite this year. This was, this might be the most disappointing movie of the summer. It, it seemed to be, like, under wraps, maybe even, like, Star Trek uh, Into Darkness. You know, they weren't releasing too much about the plot. There was, like, this cool image of Matt Damon with, like, this uh, exoskeleton suit and this cool-looking assault rifle thing. Um, and then you see the movie, and it's just really stupid. Well, you mentioned you mentioned that in Star Trek Into Darkness there was this you know, this weird Iraq war allegory. And it seems from the trailers, this movie does that, but it does like an, an intergalactic version of Occupy Wall Street. It, I think the movie is more so about universal health care than just Occupy Wall Street. Because kind of the major plot device in the movie is the, there's this magical med pod that can cure anything in like five seconds. I mean, any all, anything. All, all cancer removed. All cancer removed. Uh, polio. Uh, Parkinson's even. Who knows? I don't know. Everything. Space AIDS. Space AIDS, yeah. Uh, that's what kind of sets the movie in motion for Matt Damon's character. All right, I really should give a background instead of just ripping it apart. But in the, it's pretty deep into the future. And... Anyone's ever read Battle Angel Alita, those uh, Japanese comics, manga? Uh, it's very similar in the setup. There's the, the Earth is pretty much a giant junkyard. It's almost like 
The Earth is just a refugee camp, and floating above it is this space station with extremely wealthy people. Like, and they're all you know, the extremely wealthy white people. And down below, Matt Damon lives where where he lives. He has he has a Hispanic name. He's not a Hispanic actor. All the other actors with him down below on Earth are Hispanic, and I thought it was kind of weird that the only guy we're the main character we're following around is the only white guy in L.A. I don't know if that speaks well about diversity for uh, starring roles. But um, Matt Damon works... He's like this guy who has a little bit of a history. And he works at like this uh, plant that produces robots for uh, the people on Elysium, the space station. And one day he gets caught inside of like uh, an assembly sort of room and it gives him horrific radiation poisoning that's going to kill him in like a day or two and he only he knows of the med pods that go up to Elysium and that, that can cure everything everything they're magical then it starts to get stupid Ah, <laughs> I know uh, we're introduced to Charlton Colty is that how you say his name he was the star of District 9 okay and you know he's still got his little, he's got his South African accent, and he works directly under uh, Jodie Foster's character, and she's the defense minister of Elysium. She's extremely zero tolerance about people trying to, you know, illegally immigrate to Elysium and use the med pods they have. So there's a whole scene where like a group of people try to break into Elysium, and she has Charlton Colby with this kind of funky bazooka with rockets that follow you from the surface of the earth into outer space and blow them out of the sky. So it's very much like a literal class warfare movie. Yeah, it, it's it's a really dumb movie. Like, it just beats where, where, you over the head. Is that where it falls flat? It's just too heavy-handed with its message? or It does, and it's just so disappointing. I'm about to get to the, the, how it's disappointing aesthetically. Um, the action scenes are indecipherable. It's some of the worst shaky cam I've ever seen. Um, the movie opens up with this sweeping, beautiful shot of Elysium. Well, I mean, it's you know somebody's computer, and then the app, then it cuts right to Matt Damon as a little boy, and it's this shaky camera. I can't really see what's going on, and I guess they're trying to show, you know, the differences between the two societies. But did it have to be, like, the worst shaky cam ever? I don't know. And it makes, like, action scenes that could have been pretty thrilling. It makes them really boring because you can't tell what's going on. Um, the CG in the movie is spectacular. And Blomkamp has a, a pretty extensive background in CG. And just his sense of perspective and lighting and shadow on CG objects is fantastic that's why the uh, the prawns in district nine they look they just they looked realistic and the battle droids in this movie look really realistic too yeah but th that's the the aesthetic thing and in the movie once matt damon is sick and he visits like this super hacker in la to try to get him to elysium he outfits matt damon with uh this kind of exoskeleton thing and i feel like they didn't make it seem cool like, he just has this exoskeleton, and he just has an exoskeleton. It just looks different. 
like he tears off the head of a robot in one scene and another scene he hits a guy really hard and that's kind of about it mm. and that cool gun that he has in the picture it's his chemrail he uses it on one guy he like completely unloads around a, a magazine on somebody and Shoto Copley was pretty entertaining in the movie as this nasty special ops guy who lives among the people and he kills, you know, whoever he has to. But, uh, I mean, he's just a scenery-chewing villain. And Gotcha. And, and the other problem I was going to mention with the movie were, were all the female characters. All There's three of them. There's Jodie Foster, and then there's this woman, uh, Matt Damon's known since he was a boy, who's now a nurse on Earth, and she has a sick daughter, is the third female character, and they're nothing but plot devices. They're there to make Matt Damon feel bad about being selfish for wanting to go to Elysium to cure himself, and then you can kind of see where it's going from there. It's actually like a disappointing remake of District 9. In both movies, ah. we have the main character, who's maybe not the best guy in the world, um, he he gets sick with something. In the case of District 9, he's turning into a prawn. This one, he has radiation poisoning. And the only way they can get sick, I mean, get healthy, is to go up into some sort of floating fortress. District 9, it was the alien spaceship. During that time, they end up helping out other people. Uh, they, they become less selfish. Yeah. In District 9, like, there was a good character arc to it. And this movie, and it, it, I remember District Nine was pretty effective because it just kind of showed instead of telling. Yeah, um, that movie had some very de- demonstrative, you know, political commentary, you know, about apartheid and everything. But when you're referring to something that's happened to in the past, and then you're, and then in the next movie, you're really just beating the audience over the head with uh, your political commentary about universal health care, the one percent. In this movie, it's more like the point zero zero one percent. Then it becomes just—it's just too much, and it takes you out of the story. And that's all I really have to say on that for now. So. All right then. Well, um, a few big superhero movies came out this summer. Yes. Uh, you know, I—I'm going to go ahead and say a few words about Iron Man three, which. The fact that right before we started recording this, I hadn't, I didn't even remember I'd seen it should tell you a lot about how much I felt for it. I, okay, I really enjoyed the first Iron Man movie. I think everybody enjoys the first Iron Man I enjoyed, movie. like, the first act of it. Uh, Iron Man 2 was a case of diminishing returns for me where I did not really care for it too much. And Iron Man 3 is all of my problems with Iron Man 2 enhanced into something I like even less. Uh, now, I'm going to say this is the first time Shane Black is in the director's chair of mm-hmm. uh, Lethal Weapon fame and, and Kiss Kiss uh, yeah, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Robert Downey Jr. So I had I had some pretty high hopes. And the, the Shane Black kind of witty banter, it's all there. And I realized that my problem isn't really with the the film itself it's probably with the iron man character uh 
I, I'm, I'm a big comic fan, but I've never really had it in me to love Iron Man outside of, like, a team environment. I don't really seek out reading Iron Man stories. And a lot of the characters were... The, a big problem I had with Iron Man 2 was that it's pretty much just a movie about Tony Stark partying and being an alcoholic for two hours, and then he beats a bad guy. And yeah. Iron Man 3 continues that trend, but it adds this extra bullshit element of me... Of me I'm I'm supposed to believe that by the end of it, Tony Stark is a better person, but he's only a better person because he tells me that he is mm. like nothing. He's done nothing to change himself. He's done nothing to grow as a character. He's just better because he says, I'm a better man. I'm, I'm not just Iron Man. I'm Tony Stark. And that means something, you know, isn't, and isn't that what alcoholics do? It is. It is. And, you know, and maybe oh, that's the point. Maybe that's the point, but it, it's kind of handled sloppily. Um, I will say in the movie's favor, uh, they Ben Kingsley plays the Mandarin, which is uh, a character that really can't work in modern film. Um, Isn't he like a I mean, he's he's green-skinned Asian guy? And... Yeah, he, he started out as a yellow peril villain. Like, he was very much... Uh, an embodiment of America's fear and hatred of Asians in the World War II and post World War II and Vietnam Red and so Chinese. on. Yeah. Right. He he's a he's a poor man's Fu Manchu. Um, and it it that's not like America doesn't really have that fe- like that animosity toward Asian culture so much right now. Uh, so they decided to make him a Middle Eastern villain. Uh, so he has the so he's he releases videos like Al Qaeda. I, I was this getting is, a Osama bin Laden vibe. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. That's but he he's like an Osama bin Laden that talks like a southern preacher. <laughs> he like he releases all these viral YouTube videos and like like even his plan involves viral YouTube videos. Without saying too much, there's a twist for that character, which really amps up a, a fairly funny moment. Um, this goes back to me talking about Tony Stark being a dick. Yeah. It's, I don't, I'm not a prude. Like, I, I watch the movies that we talk about, and I don't, I don't cringe at all. But this is, like, Iron Man is a superhero film. Mm-hmm. And even though the world really wants superheroes to be this, this dark, gritty thing ever since 1987... I, Frank Miller. <laughs> I I really cringe when I hear curse words in superhero movies. And for me, the pinnacle of this is when Tony Stark calls a calls a uh, a ten year old boy a pussy. <laughs> He's just like, "Come on, kid, don't be a pussy!" Ha ha ha. And it's just. It's the worst. I understand that he is a flawed character, and I am yeah. down for that. Like mm-hmm. he, you know, he is a he is a washed up alcoholic that's completely full of himself, and that's that's his that's why people love him. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's also his greatest flaw. But there comes a level of responsibility I feel with these heroes that kids are supp- like kids are supposed to look up to, and adults can still appreciate. Where I just don't. It doesn't do it for me when a when a superhero cusses, and that's a that's a problem that's going to bridge right into Man of Steel here. Yeah, I mean, isn't that uh, a difficult balance to hit? Is like 
the innocence of just a superhero in and of itself and the realism you want to put into it in a movie. Yeah. And and spoiler alert, when I when I say that I have issues with Robert Downey Jr. and his his entire arc in this movie and how Iron Man just tells us he's a better person at the end, it also includes the the core of the first three movies the only reason that Tony Stark became a redeemable character at all is that he had the shrapnel in his heart mm. and he built that arc reactor to keep it out of his chest. Now, in the in the last two minutes of the movie, he just decides to get surgery to take that out. Oh, so Which, it wasn't an issue. It was never an issue. He could have he could have done it all along. He never needed the arc reactor, and he's like, he's, he's even like, I realized I didn't need to be Iron Man. I am Iron Man. I'll always be Iron Man, but I'm also Tony Stark. And it's like that doesn't doesn't make any sense. Why why didn't he do that in the first place? Yeah, it's such a yeah. hollow thing to do. I don't know. Man. Anyway, I, I've said enough. I don't. I'm there. There is a huge audience for this movie. Obviously, people love Iron Man like very much. Two billion dollars or something close to that. I just realized I'm not the Iron Man audience, and I'm, not, and I'm okay with that. I haven't really liked Iron Man on on, on screen and since like the first act of the first movie. I mean, The Avengers was an okay movie. It's entertaining. I I, I quite like The Avengers. Yeah, no, it's I'm, pretty good. I'm for that one. Uh, I don't. Well, I've never been like an Avengers guy in the first place, but I uh, see that's you. That's where you and I differ. Yes. 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 <laughs> I mean, Thor. Give me a break. Ah, uh, don't even. So, so you know, let's let's just fire the hate on all cylinders here. Uh, and go into go into Man of Steel. Man of Steel. A movie so nice. We tried to do a we tried to record a podcast for it. Our equipment failed us repeatedly. Yeah, it was one of those days. Uh, I don't know. I'm actually. I actually prefer this format for this movie. I wouldn't want to talk about it for a long, extended period of time. No, it wasn't good. It's it, it, it's it's so mediocre that I that all of the like the rants I had prepared on opening weekend have just faded away into the aether. I don't really have a lot to say. Um, other, I mean, let, well, let's just go into why it was disappointing, why it was sure. bad. It's a, it's a Zack Snyder movie. And but oddly enough, it doesn't have some of the Zack Snyder stylistic trademarks like the regular motion, slow motion, regular motion in the same exact shot without any cutting. Like I I did expect a lot of scenes of Superman flying in slow motion through CGI raindrops, <laughs> blistering all over his face in different directions. That actually didn't happen, but um, it didn't. We're it's gonna come. Yeah, I'm sure it will. And then. The next probably terrible one, um, but it's a very it's a morose and uh, I've already said this tonight about the other movies I didn't like. It's a miserable movie. It's a joyless experience. It's a, it's a joyless experience. Yeah, it's it's just not fun. It's the antithesis of fun. It's all the, there's so much action in it, but none of it's interesting or inspiring. Um, and that's it's. It it very much feels like Zack Snyder trying to do the same thing Nolan did with Batman, where it's like, see guys, it doesn't have to be fun. It's just cool. Where do we start with this uh, 
about the story. I, I think the the cardinal sin of this movie is what it did to the Superman character. Yes. And how how boring they made him. How un-Superman. And one of that is one of the reasons is he's not he's not Clark Kent in it. He's always Superman in the movie. Lois Lane knows he's Superman pretty much right away. Oh yeah, she finds him and he makes no effort to hide his identity. Yeah. And he does un-Superman things like um this has been talked about by countless other reviewers. But uh there's all these big destructive fight scenes he has with other Kryptonians, evil Kryptonians, and they just destroy Smallville, and then they pretty much level Metropolis. And you just see buildings being knocked over. It's oddly like this 9-11 imagery that no one wanted. And you just know people are dying by the thousands. The point of Superman, what made him such an icon, is that because Superman is so invulnerable, because he can't be killed, the only way you can really hurt Superman is to destroy the city and take out the people that can't defend themselves. Yeah, and that's what that's what happened in the Richard Donner uh, Superman 2, which had General Zod and the others as the bad guys, like this one. The only time Superman goes out of his way to save anyone in this movie is a single soldier, and that's only so that they can advance the plot line of the military seeing that he's on their side. And, okay, I'm going to jump right to the end here. Yeah. So we we go to the end where Michael Shannon Zod is fighting Superman in a, I guess it's a subway, and Zod is threatening to vaporize this family of four. And he's got he's got his heat vision going. Superman's got him in a headlock, and he's like, "If you don't, if you don't kill me, I'm gonna vaporize these four people." Now, prior to this, <laughs> Superman has not shown a lick of concern about collateral damage or people being vaporized. So I don't buy this aspect. But secondly, there is no indication that it's so dire that Superman can't just grab him and fly away. <laughs> Yeah, so instead... He breaks his neck. He he breaks his neck, and Zack Snyder is quoted to have said, well, if Superman never killed anybody, how would he know killing is wrong? I don't know, Zack. I have never killed anybody, and I get the sense that I shouldn't kill. Which makes me really wonder how many people Zack Snyder has killed. <laughs> So, you know, let's let's talk about what we did like, though. Is there anything we really did like about this movie? Uh, I liked Michael Shannon as Zod. Okay. Um, I think Terrence Howard was better, you know, way back in the early 80s. But this was pretty good. I liked his henchwoman, Feora. She was very striking, and she was kind of a big hit on the internet after the movie came. I was like, who is, uh, who is that woman? I forgot this German actress who played her. I like that the movie never forgets its corporate sponsors. Holy crap. But before we get into that, uh, <laughs> Michael Shannon does have like this great line towards the end of the movie, right before Superman and Zod fight for like another 20 minutes. And he he's explaining to Superman how he was born for this. And, uh, you know, he was bred to be a warrior. He's trained all of his life. 
And he goes, where did you get your training? A farm? He just has such a nasty tone of voice in it. I love it. He's like, that's that's pretty good bad guy stuff right there. And I, 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 I was okay with the Krypton sequence as well, which is just so stylized that it looks like it's straight off the cover of a heavy metal magazine. Yeah, it's even got uh, Jarrell played by uh, Russell Crowe, riding on like a what is it like a giant dragonfly thing or something? Yeah, grabbing a grabbing a skull which contains the <laughs> DNA of all Krypton and. Yeah, that was one of those plot points that didn't make any sense. Oh, see, I didn't care. I, I just assumed, okay, there's the genes of some early Kryptonian are on this skull fragment. So they explained that it was all of Krypton or something. I guess because everyone else had been killed. So how do you feel about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher his name, but how do you feel about Henry Cavill? He's kind of boring. He's, kinda... he's, he's got the physique. Like he has, yeah. he has a he has a cartoonishly barrel chest. I mean, in this but this age when like can't... actors, you know, they get like personal trainers and they're told like, oh, you're just gonna work out for six months and get huge. It's not that impressive anymore to me. But, but he... he doesn't have any of Christopher Reeve's charisma. Oh, not an ounce of it. Like Christopher Reeve just screams Superman when you look at him. Well, and and I think I think maybe the problem here too is that Cavill doesn't get to play an entire character the way that Christopher Reeves does. Where like we don't Clark Kent doesn't become part of the equation until the last minute of the movie. No. Whereas Reeve alternates between Kent and Kal-El so effortlessly that that's that's why we remember him. We don't remember him just because he was the 70s movie Superman, we remember it because he was Superman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think Cavill still has some ways to go if he wants to really uh, stand out of his shadow. Well, he needs a better script, for starters. And uh, another thing that helped this movie be so morose was the color palette. Everything, it looks like a Clint Eastwood movie, like uh, Million Dollar Baby, but that's a really depressing movie. A serious drama. It's not a Superman movie. It has the same color palette, and even his costume is boring. It almost looks black at times. Even Three Hundred had brighter colors. But yeah, I, I kind of, this movie's kind of a write-off for me. And I just want to comment on the the laughable amount of uh of product placement here. I don't think I've ever um, seen a movie with product placement like this before. So blatant, so blatant, and you know, and for good reason. I I, I believe. Almost half of the movie's budget was completely pay, pay, uh, paid for by corporate sponsorships. So they didn't really care how much it made. You know, it was still going to make its money back. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like like when, <laughs> when Lois Lane is investigating Superman's background in Smallville, she looks for his friend Pete Ross. Yeah. And somebody's like, oh yeah, he works down at the IHOP. Mark Wade and, lookalike. Yeah. And, and then Feora and... Uh, Superman fight in the IHOP, and then they fight in front of Sears. I also love that uh, Martha Kent. Uh, there's a scene right before she's going to go to work, and I think like the bad guys show up, and she's wearing a Sears uh, polo shirt. Oh my god! I didn't even. She's know about to go that. work at Sears. You know. <laughs> Whoa! Was there anything else that was like as heavily advertised as those two? Uh, there was a brand new Seven Eleven. 
That's it was Seven Eleven. There's a bunch of Seven Eleven stuff. It was a pristine 2013 ultra modern Seven Eleven in the middle of Smallville, Kansas. Yes, any town USA, they get the new Seven Eleven. Um, they're, hey, they're they're just building those in my neighborhood. <laughs> you know, like we we don't have those yet. Yeah, I I don't think I've ever seen one like that. They're not too big, you know, this far down south, I suppose. But anyhow. Yeah, so I, I it's a disappointing movie for me. I well, I wasn't. I don't ask a, a lot, so I wasn't. Me neither. Me neither. I I don't I don't ask a lot of Superman, and I know it's like. Next to Batman, he's not. He's he. Superman has really dwindled in the public's eye. Mm-hmm. But the movie doesn't even capture the the basic element that still makes Superman great, which is that you know he, there's a, there's all these there's all this potential for completely over the top stories, um, as demonstrated beautifully in Grant Morrison's All Star Superman. But there's also mm-hmm. but. Like we, we people love Superman be, not because he's like us. Like people say, oh, you know, you can be like Batman or you can be like these other heroes. Superman, no one can be like Superman. He is he's incorruptible. He's the, he's the yeah he's the incorruptible paragon of virtue. I don't want him to come down to my level. Mm-hmm. I want to just look at him as like a symbol of good. Yeah. And I and I don't really feel like this movie delivered and. You know, and and Snyder can say that that's the point, and uh, you know I'll wait for the next couple, <laughs> and see if he finally delivers on it. But uh, you know, Superman, you know this, I, I'm not into it. I feel like this is how this is the Superman movie, or these kinds of movies are the ones we're just gonna have to have for the next fifteen years. It's just, oh yeah. It's just gonna be like this, uh, and I just have to accept that. Will I see the next one? Maybe. Uh, I, you know, if if we're not podcasting about it, I'm not going to see it. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say it. All right, then. Moving along. Uh, so, uh, you saw another superhero movie. And believe it or not, it was the best of the bunch. Which I find incredible because I hated the first Kick-Ass movie. I, I like the first Kick-Ass. And if you like the first Kick-Ass, you'll probably like the second one. It, it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. But it's not like this joyless slog fest of just depression that was Man of Steel and what you were talking about with Iron Man 3. It's a fun uh, Sunday morning hangover movie, as I'd call it. With cold pizza, With probably. cold pizza, yes, of course. Uh, and you'd enjoy it. Like, it's not quite as witty as the first one. Um, there's not a whole lot to say on it. We have more stuff to say on the movies we hated, but uh, Kick-Ass 2. It, it's not a great movie, and it's not a bad movie. It takes place just a, a year or two after the events of the first film, where Kick-Ass blew up uh, the main bad guy with a bazooka. His son is swearing revenge kick-ass and uh, he becomes a supervillain who calls himself the mother effer the the motherfucker and he he, uh, rounds up his own band of uh, supervillains and some of them are they have funny names but they don't have a whole lot to do except for um, mother Russia who's played by this Russian bodybuilder woman 
And they just found, they must have looked far and wide, but they found just the right woman for the role. Like, she's really striking, and her performance is kind of a highlight of the movie, uh, her action scenes. Uh, Hit Girl's back, and with the first movie, there, there was the shock value of this 11-year-old, 10-year-old or whatever, saying all these profanities and killing people left and right, and no one can stop her. Which I know, which was your hang-up about the first movie, is that it, oh, it, it, it introduced these completely unrealistic characters. Well, it, my, my hang-up with the first movie, it's not just that. It's that the movie... Well, first of all, I, I don't really enjoy the work of Mark Millar. I think it's I, I think it's either. mean, but it was an I think it's mean, it, it's mean spirited just for the sake of being mean spirited. Um, but like the first the first movie's conceit is that it's going to be this story about how like have you ever wondered what it'd be like if a normal guy tried to be a superhero and then he just gets his ass kicked all the time and but then by the end of it we have this. You know, twelve-year-old girl calling people cunts and cutting them in half with katanas, and our our normal guy heroes flying around in a jetpack shooting rockets, and it just it, I think it it overreached for me, and it never really. I just never I I never felt like I was having a good time with it. Um, I I enjoyed the first film. Um, I thought it was a really solid action movie, because of its progression with it. And I thought it was really funny. Like, a lot of it was kind of like teen sex comedy humor. But it was good teen sex com- comedy humor. Kick-Ass set itself up as being kind of a nasty, foul-mouthed take sure. on some and it, and it delivers that, and I'm just... Uh, you know, And again, just like Iron Man 3, I don't know if the movie's flawed, or it's just... Uh, it's not for me. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's another case where I, I just don't feel like it's for me. But I'm glad to hear that Kick-Ass 2 in some ways feels like an improvement. Um, I, I think the first one's better, so okay. <laughs> there's that. But you're you're still enjoying it on the same level, then? Uh, on the same, yeah, for the same reasons. Um, well, the action scenes aren't quite as good. They aren't filmed very well. It's a lot of shaky cam. Nothing like Elysium. I mean, nothing like that. But uh, is Jim is Jim Carrey's? This is too much. This is too close to Sandy Hook, and I can't stand by it. Controversy justified in the slightest. No, not at all. His character in the movie is a—he's uh, supposed to be like a former mob enforcer guy turned superhero, and part of his shtick is that he carries an unloaded gun because he doesn't want to kill anybody, and so that—that huh. that, that, that makes his argument even odder, even more odd than uh, initial than than when the first time you heard it. Uh, so, the violence in it is very silly, and it's nothing but CG blood, which I, I can't stand CG blood, but I mean, it was acceptable here. I mean, it can happen, but I don't have to like it, right? Uh, yeah. All right, then. Well, I mean, if so if you enjoy Kick-Ass, go see Kick-Ass 2. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, don't. Simple as that. All right. Uh, um... I, you know, after I saw Man of Steel, I needed a little bit of a palate cleanser. Uh, so I, the same day I saw This Is the End, which is the uh, Seth Rogen's directorial debut, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's, I, I don't have a lot to say about it. It's, it's funny uh, in the way that 
like a Judd Apatow kind of movie is funny. Um, and it very much feels like Rogan is trying to trying to be Judd Apatow doing an Edgar Wright movie. Like the mm-hmm. the, the same the same uh, morals of like male friend the same themes of male friendship are there. Uh, there's a lot of goofs on, you know, horror and apocalypse tropes, and it's and and seeing the actors play exaggerated versions of themselves is a is a fun novelty. Uh, yeah, I thought that was really kind of just fun. the whole point is just to have them playing themselves and be silly. Absolutely, and it and it and on that level, it plays it plays just fine. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a solid rental, I would say. Okay. So let's move on to uh, you saw another you saw World War Z. World War Z was um, actually a pretty entertaining picture. I was very skeptical about it. Um, I was kind of familiar with the novel. A lot of people love the novel and complain about the movie. Uh, the movie has like pretty streamlined plot, which, from what I, what I understand, is not how the novel is. My understanding of the novel is that it's very much like a, it's like a written documentary. Yeah. Like it's 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 different segments. It's there's no real main character. It's just a plot that details like a, a fake historical account of the zombie war. Yeah. I mean, th- and that's not really a format you want for a zombie movie. I mean, it'd be interesting if somebody had done that, but I, I think it could work. I mean, if you could, you could do a two-hour fake documentary. I think that could work really interestingly, but it'd probably be an extremely expensive thing to shoot and do well. Yeah, like I think there's supposed to be more and more locations, and the movie that we finally got, it, it had a lot of locations. I mean, ton for a zombie movie, and that's kind of the appeal of it is that it's a zombie movie on a huge scale, but it, it's got the running fast zombies, which also weren't in the novel uh, from what I've heard and they do this thing where they just like keep piling on top of each other to break over surfaces or whatever okay that's the elephant in the room I want to address yeah. <laughs> yeah. because because when I was sitting in the theater with my girlfriend and watching that trailer she turned to me because she had no idea that World War Z was being, becoming a movie she did not know what she was seeing and she thought it was a movie about people just freaking out and piling on top of each other, like <laughs> masses of rubber, because it's just because the trailer is just see it's just scene after scene of CGI people falling into piles on each other like crazy. Had I not known that this was a novel about zombies, I would have never guessed the trailer was about zombies or the the, the movie it was advertising was about zombies. And it doesn't seem like it's just running zombies either. Like these seem superhuman. Like they are flying through the air like birds of prey. Yeah, they all have. All of a sudden, they can jump like Michael Jordan or something. They're just completely uninhibited. But the movie was it itself turned out to be pretty thrilling and entertaining. Like it throws you right in the stuff, like immediately. Like there's a few minutes. So oh, here's Brad Pitt. Here's his family. Brad Pitt used to be this UN investigator. Now he's in, I don't know, he's in the private sector or whatever. And he's he's got that Resident Evil backstory where he's he's ex CIA, ex FBI, ex Delta Force, ex Navy Marine. It, it wasn't it wasn't that he wasn't like a special ops man or anything. He was just like an investigator or something. The best scene in the movie, which occurs about halfway through, 
in Israel. And that's the scene from the trailer where the zombies are piling up on top of each other. Uh, that that whole sequence, uh, that that actually put me on the edge of my seat for here, you know, here and there. That was really exciting. Um, like the pacing was great. And this is from the guy who gave the world Quantum of Solace. And I had heard all of these production problems that had happened during the film, and I wasn't quite sure how the movie would handle that. And I think it was all about the ending, which you'll you'll see the ending. And all of a sudden, there's no more CG zombies. It's zombies in makeup. Okay. And I actually prefer that. But the, the action was severely toned down. Because, like, the last fifth of the movie or so is inside of a science lab. In, uh, I want to say the UK. And I think the original ending was going to be, like, Brad Pitt joining, like, an army in Russia. And... I don't think he ever sees his family again. He spends years fighting zombies or something. The movies that we got is a bit more immediate. Uh, the DVD just came out, so maybe it has the extra stuff. And I'm curious to see it. Well, you know, World War Z2 is coming. Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked that the movie made money and that they're going to do a sequel. I, don't, I didn't I think don't, anybody I think would the... know what it was. Well, I think I think the thing is we haven't yet hit the the critical zombie burnout point. But I'm I'm still shocked by that too. Walking Dead is still a huge thing. Uh, you know, yeah. it's people can't get enough of the stuff right now. There's there's a billion dudes wearing zombie hunter T-shirts. Yeah, uh, there's still you'll still see the lonely guy reading the zombie survival guide at a coffee shop. Uh, Resident Evil is still yeah. popular. I mean, tons of other games. Walking Dead, Walking Dead number one is still the best-selling trade paperback of any comic every month. I I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it's it's almost it's it's consistently on the top ten. So Robert Kirkman is really just swimming in the dough. Absolutely, These zombie uh, you know, dollars. You know this. I, I would call it the Romero Renaissance, but poor Romero can barely get a movie made anymore. So yeah, the know, man that a... could have directed Resident Evil first one. Oh, God, can you imagine that movie? I don't know, man. I don't know. Anyway. I think he should have left the the genre alone with Day of the Dead way back in 85. Oh, Uh, agreed. Agreed. Anyway, I I recommend... World War Z is probably the first movie I've mentioned that I can actually recommend to most people. Well, uh, for for my next movie, I'm gonna cheat a little bit. Okay. Because it actually came out in 2012. Oh. Uh, but, it, but but it but it kind of hit the festival circuit in Canada. Okay. And never and never really came here until it came out on DVD and on Netflix Instant Stream uh, this summer. Hmm. And it's called The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lay, which is, um, it's the first movie. Uh, from the staff of the uh, horror magazine Rue Morgue, which is yeah, they've been around since the late '90s. They have, and they're a very, they're a very. I uh, I'm a subscriber to that magazine, and that's actually how I first heard of the film. Okay. Um, they're right up there with Fangoria, which is probably the better known one. Hmm. Um, but it is, it's actually a really well done, creepy film that preys on. Uh, fears of religious iconography and uh, faith and faithlessness. 
It's about this um, antiques collector played by Aaron Poole, uh, who inherits this house from his from his, from this from his estranged mother, and he discovers pretty much that the house is just this tremendous shrine filled with religious icons and religious statues, and uh, it's just it's. I would even say the house is arguably the star of the movie. It I is... love that stuff, though. Oh, yeah. The set, it's a low-budget film. Uh, Aaron Poole is technically the only actor on screen almost the entire time. Um, mm. Like we hear, we hear other characters. Like, we overhear them. Uh, the, the mother, the estranged dead mother, uh, played by Vanessa Redgrave... Uh, appears only as a voiceover who sometimes narrates and talks about her loneliness and her isolation before she died. Presumably it's her suicide note, but it's hard to tell. Yeah. Do you know what uh, the budget was? It was uh, 1,800,000 Canadian. Oh. So pretty small. Pretty small. Um, But it... The, the, the house is really the star of the show. It's very creepy. The statues are really unnerving. It... It pretty much takes place over a 24-hour period, and throughout the course of the movie, we learn that the, car- the uh, antiques dealer played by Aaron Poole, well, first of all, he learns that every antique he's ever sold was bought by his mother, and they're all in this house. Hmm. So, like, so, like, it was all bought by this wealthy dealer that he never met, and it ended up being his mother. So it's it's all in the house. She She always wanted him to come back, and he wouldn't, and we learn it's because... As a child, his mother traumatized him repeatedly in trying to get him to believe in this this obsession she had with angels, in which she would light candles around an angel statue, this tiny angel statue, and tell him it was his protector, but tell him that essentially the angel would no longer protect him from hell if he didn't believe in God and, and he let all the candles go out. So like that's that is his childhood pathological trauma that he hasn't gotten over, and as a result, he's a man of no faith. Like he is, he doesn't believe in anything that she believes in, and we sort of learn over time that mom was essentially in a cult uh, that that dealt with angel worship. Uh, there's a really creepy videotape which might have the most unsettling jump scare via VHS tape since Signs with the first reveal of the alien. Uh, it's really effectively done. But it's and, a better movie than Signs, right? Uh, I'm Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of this movie. I'm a pretty big fan of this movie. I enjoyed Signs on its merits, but I'm a pretty big fan. I, I would defend this movie pretty uh, strongly. Even, I'll say this too, for, for having the budget it does, somewhere in the middle of the movie, a CGI creature starts popping up. Hmm. Like, there's a CGI monster... But they they cleverly keep it in the shadows mostly, so its presence never becomes too hokey. Yeah, it's the Jaws factor. Exactly. It it's we see it a little bit more than the shark in Jaws, but it's still. But because they're wise enough to know their limitations and keep it just creeping in the fringes and really. Uh, just playing the playing the unnerving factor more than just jumping down our throats, with it, it plays really well and it looks pretty good i would just say i and maybe it's maybe it's because i was you know i was born in virginia i mean i'm i'm part of that southern bible belt you know i am too buddy 
Absolutely. Well, hey, I you know, and I, I know you understand. I but like I grew up on a street where there were seven churches, like side by side, you know, and uh, so I'm, I'm not a I'm not a very spiritual person, but for for whatever reason, like that sort of just religious iconography is really ingrained into me. Southern Gothic. Just, exactly. Uh, motif. Yeah. Exactly, and this Canadian movie really captures that. Like I, I'm deeply unsettled by movies like The Exorcist, um, and Rosemary's Baby, and Classics. I, absolutely. And I think that this is a for what it is. I think it's a really great little movie. I, I recommend it pretty highly. I, you know, it's like I said, it's on Netflix Instant right now. Okay. So if you want to go and stream it, I would say go do that All right. right away. You, hear, you heard the man, kids. All right, and that's and that's really all I have to say about it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that one. All right, and now since we're kind of in the territory of the movies we liked, more or less, <laughs> we're now at the one we might disagree on the most. Yeah, Pacific Rim. I am a huge fan of kaiju movies. I am a huge fan of giant robot cartoons. I this... am not so much a fan of the former. Okay. See, and I, and I think maybe that's maybe that's where it went ro- a little wrong for you. I don't know. It, that's maybe like a reason it didn't like capture my imagination. But I I went into it with pretty modest expectations. I'm a huge Guillermo del Toro fan, but I had to you know, but I, but I wanted to keep my expectations at the door. I didn't want to oversell it to myself. Uh, you had seen it before I had seen it. Uh, another yeah. mutual friend of ours had seen it before I'd seen it, and both of you had come back with a "This is not very good." It's like uh, I, I didn't think it was anything special. And see, to me, I don't know. It, I think I got exactly what I paid for, and I think it delivers yeah. it beautifully. I, this is actually the <laughs> the only movie I've seen twice this summer. I don't know. Like, it has a nice look to it. It's got Del Toro's visual style stamped right on there. In a way, it's a little disappointing. Like he's a he's a director who's famously had all of these interesting projects, and none of them get made. And then this is the one that gets made. It, it's it's a movie that I I think admittedly he said is you know this is for kids you know or for the kid at heart who loves this stuff. Well, let's talk about that then. Like where where specifically did this fall flat for you? Um, one big thing was the main character. The actor you're supposed to enjoy in uh, Charlie Hunnam. Hunnam. He is like El Generico white guy. Like <laughs> he's just he's Mr. Bland. He's he's not he's white bread. He's boring. And, uh. His his I will say his American accent is totally over the top. It's so over the top. The kaiju, the kaiju came one day. I'm from America. We always thought alien life would come from beyond the stars. I mean, and that's because he's a you know, he's a British actor who apparently doesn't do an American accent so great. I, I would have preferred him to just be British. I mean, but the movie needed like a Han Solo-y kind of guy to be the star. And I understand that. And uh, another thing I didn't like, and you know, and if you if you think about it as like an anime movie come to life, American stereotype probably do have that sort of blonde, grizzled, deep voice oh, guy yeah. that's going to hit on the Asian girl at some point. <laughs> yeah, thankfully this movie had like the the love 
that was there was mostly just implied. There's no like makeout scene or anything. Nothing like James Bondish. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I and appreciate in fact, I that. Quite, well, yeah, I quite loved that. I mean, you know, and you say James Bondish, and I mean the film practically ends with the uh, that shot from. Oh, what is the James Bond movie where he goes to Japan? Oh, uh, you only live twice. Yeah, it practically ends with the shot from the James Bond movie "You Only Live Twice." Yeah, uh, you know, in which he is floating in a boat with the uh, a Japanese woman, and they do not make out. No, they they kind of snuggle though. It's, they do. It's they do. I mean, the, the, the romance <laughs> is implied, but it's not outright. Yeah. Uh, another thing I didn't like: I didn't think the the monsters, the kaiju, were very interesting visually. Like they all looked, they were all kind of this the variation of this giant crusty monster with a glowing mouth that it wasn't very interesting and and i felt like that was one thing that was hyped up that did not deliver i feel like i I think with this movie most of them were uh based on actual sea creatures like they were definitely trying to draw from the deep ocean uh theming around them uh, I, I know that the plan for the second one involves a kind of Mecha Godzilla situation where they're going to fight. Supposedly, you know, Del Toro changes his mind a billion times. Yeah. But <laughs> supposedly they're going to fight like a kaiju version of a Jaeger in the next movie. Yeah. The giant robot. And yeah, I didn't think th- at least the Jaegers had a little bit of variety to them. Like there was the Russian one and then there was the Chinese one with three arms. That was kind of interesting. I... That's actually one of the problems I have is that I wanted to see some more of those other Jaegers. I did too. I, that was a problem I had too. But it, I'm just but saying they're the, all the they're itself. all incapacitated their first time out. Yeah, yeah. Um, the designs, it's a nice, it's like it's a nice variation, but like individually, like they're not the most spectacular things ever. And in that, you know, looking at that makes you realize how hard it is to design something in this day and age. Sure. It's really cool. It's like, wow, where the hell is Stan Winston when you need him? You know. The uh, my my problem with the kaiju designs isn't so much how they're designed, in just that the 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 nature of the cinematography in this movie, albeit beautiful, doesn't allow you to get a very good look at them. Very all often. of the battle scenes are done when it's like raining heavily, and the camera zooms in a lot, and it's squishy CG. That's something I don't like. Like the CG just didn't look that great to me. Well, and I, you know, I, I, I kind, I, I know that going into this movie, uh, Guillermo del Toro said that one of his big influences that he was really trying to capture visually is a uh, Francisco Goya painting called the Colossus, mm-hmm. which is this painting of this giant in a storm, in a stormy sea of just dark waves splashing all around him. And in that, he captures that excellently. Uh, there's some really great shots of, you know, brawling in the sea. Uh, the the Battle of Hong Kong is fantastic. That was That think, is the highlight of the movie, yeah. That is the movie's centerpiece. Um, and I, so, I, I don't know, like, I think he captures the enormity and the weight of the creature f- battles really well. Like, I, you can just, even though it's all CGI, you can that like the the CGI artistry did a really good job of demonstrating how heavy these things are. I also want to compliment in this movie. Uh, you know, you complained about Charlie Hunnam, and I and I think that's fair. But otherwise, the the cast is really good. Uh, there's a real they did a really solid job at gathering an international uh, talent pool. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I did like, I liked Ron Perlman a lot. He might have been my favorite character in the movie. Sadly, he doesn't have a lot of screen time. Well, uh, enough for a supporting character, I guess. No, he's he's super fun as Hannibal Chow. Yeah, Hannibal Chow. Uh, I also liked, I also enjoyed Charlie Day as the sort of hipster Rick Moranis scientist in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't like his sidekick scientist. I, I, they felt like they were, when they were together, it was like a different movie going on. And I understand the themes of teamwork. See, I, I, I thought the, uh, I thought drift compatibility was a really novel approach. Yeah. That felt like something out of, I, I know like the influence of this movie influences that went into this movie are all over the place. That was the thing that was like right out of, to me, uh, Evangelion. They have to synchronize with something else for your, your mech to work. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, it's, I mean, the influence is definitely there of the uh, of the Evangelion episode. Both of you dance like you want to win. Mm-hmm. Where they where the where Asuka and Shinji have to completely match each other's movements to best. <laughs> I see. I disagree. I disagree. I I thought it was a really good way too of getting uh, a lot of the characters' background exposition out of the way. Um, Rinko Kikuchi uh, as Mako Mori. I think she's I think she's really good in this movie uh, to the point where I sort of agree with some of the complaints that the movie could have been about her more than Charlie Hunnam. It would have been cool if she were the star. Uh, I feel like she doesn't have a whole lot to do otherwise than just kind of like swing the arm for him a little bit here and there. It felt like it felt like it was he was doing all the work in the robot her, suit. Her flashback is actually one of my favorite scenes. See, I I didn't like that scene. Okay, it felt it felt forced and. Uh, See, I see. I think that might come down to your lack of enjoyment with um, kaiju. It, it might. Uh, I, I mean, Godzilla movies would come on when I was a kid, and I would immediately get bored. And I know, like, that sounds like something that's like a sin to some kids, but it'd always be like these Japanese scientists bickering for like an hour, and then it was commercials, and then Godzilla would show up. Um, so I, I don't have a nostalgic. Uh, love for these kind of uh, movies. See, on that note, though, I feel like this movie delivers more action than the average kaiju movie does. It does, but the action wasn't that great. Uh, uh, see, I, I this is just one you and I are going to have to totally disagree on because yeah. I I really like this movie. I and I'm not saying and like that's not even a blatant Guillermo del Toro fanboyism for me because I didn't like Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. You know I. I, did, I haven't liked a lot of the movies he's been producing lately, but this movie completely did it for me. Like, yeah. you know, another another actor, another actor I've really enjoyed in this was uh, Idris Elba, using his actual British accent this time. He was go, he was okay. Yeah, he was good. He was good. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just this is one I really stand beside. But see, that's 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 what's interesting here, and I and I don't want to like bring in the my girlfriend thing so much, but yeah. uh, my girlfriend has no interest prior to this in kaiju she blatantly dislikes anime but like for whatever reason pacific rim really captured her imagination and really made her more interested in that kind of story and i think it i think it does come down to you know like that 
you know, Rinko Kikuchi is allowed to be sort of a tough female character that there's, I don't really know. I, I can't really even say what quality it is. It's just, there's, see, I'm being a terrible reviewer now because <laughs> I'm just, I keep saying there's just something about it. Something. Uh, but unlike every other movie I've named so far, I'm probably going to buy this one on I, Blu-ray. I mean, I, I feel like our, our disagreements on it are, are, are mostly subjective. I can't, sure. I can't objectively say this is a bad movie for the most part. And it's certainly not a bad movie. It's an entertaining one. I just didn't think it was that great. So it, it is. This movie is kind of a matter of taste, I think. Sure. But as as so many are, but you know, clearly, uh, this is like this is the first movie on this podcast that you and I have blatantly butted heads on a little bit. Yeah. It may not be the last. It may not be, and you know, and one day I might watch this again and then expand my thoughts on a further broadcast. We'll see. Yep, just call me out on it. <laughs> maybe I'll probably watch. Maybe I'll watch it again someday, and I go. You know what? Casey was right. And maybe you'll say, "F that guy. This is stupid. <laughs> I don't really." Hate I... this movie. Waste of my time. I probably won't do that. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's jump to a movie then that you and I agree is good. Yes. Uh, that that would be the third. Film and Edgar Wright's uh, Blood and Ice Cream, a.k.a. The Three Cornetto. Flavors Cornetto Trilogy. Yeah. Uh, the trilogy that kind of started out as a joke, but here yeah. it is. <laughs> or there it is. Here it is. The World's uh, End. The World's End. Oh, man. I, this was a really solid movie, just all, all the way around, I think. Absolutely. Um I'm going to go ahead on the record and say that this is probably my favorite Simon Pegg performance. It might be his most dynamic because he's a bit of a scoundrel, but he's really likable and he's a little pathetic too. I, you know, I, I, I think I enjoyed this so much because like typically Pegg plays himself yeah. more or less. Like, like Sean and Shaun of the Dead is definitely just Pegg being Pegg. I mean, Nicholas Angel is an over-the-top parody of cop movies, but yeah. but in this movie, but in this movie, Peg gets to show a little range. Like, the people in the theater I saw this in were were laughing at you know his his character in this movie, Gary King. They were laughing at Gary King at first mm -hmm. because they thought, oh, this is another zany Peg character, but progressively the audience seemed to really grasp more and more that he's a selfish addict in this movie. That he's he's not a good person. No, and it's actually very sad. He's this—he's a man who has not matured. He's not—he hasn't grown up since the age of seventeen, and now he's thirty-seven. He's somebody that's really living in the glory days of, or at least what he perceived to be the glory days of high school. Yeah, he's—he's he's unable to move on. Like for him, he even clearly says things never got better. Um, then maybe we should talk about like the plot of the movie a little bit. Sure. Uh, the movie starts off with a flashback of Gary King telling whoever uh, about, like, you know, his last day of high school with his best buddies in the world and how they tried to go on this pub crawl in their hometown and go for, and just, you know, drink all night and then end up at one at the last pub called The World's End. It's a 12-pub it's run called The Golden Mile. Yeah, yes, The Golden Mile, yeah. You remember what town it was, or is that important? Um, 
It's it's a small English town. Yeah, that's really yeah. like that's all we're really supposed to know. Yeah, it's it's like a nicer version of the one from Hot Fuzz. More or less a modern village. Yes. And Simon Pegg is telling his little backstory to like it looks like some kind of support group. We don't know what it's for or what it's about. But it, initially. Yeah, initially, and we don't. It, but it it's not something good. And that that's that's a, the strength of this movie's dramatic structure. It introduces certain things and tells you about them as you. It lets the story unfold. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And most of the movies we've talked about already have not done that. And that's you know that's been a strength of all of Edgar Wright's movies. Uh, you know, especially especially in this trilogy where you're really rewarded for paying attention. Things mentioned early come up later. Like yeah. Uh, well, you see him planting, but then you find them, and it's you know really fun. And, uh, well, not just fun, but it's engrossing, you know. In a per- perfect example, at the end of the movie, we're told that the aliens arrived in a shooting star. Um, and if you pay attention to Gary King's flashback, when he's sitting on the hill talking about what a perfect night it is, yeah. a shooting star flies by. Mm. Um, and, you know, for him, that's just like, a, wow, that's the perfect end to the perfect day. But, you know, that's that's when the aliens invaded. Oh, yeah, well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, maybe. Sure, sure. Uh, but... He and his he convinces his buddies who've all grown up. Some of them have children. Some some are married. Some you know they all seem to have they're, pretty stable careers. They're they're all yeah they're all big career men. They're people who've clearly grown up and yeah they're, they're working adulthood. in London or wherever. Gary King is wearing the same exact clothes he wore when he was <laughs> seventeen years old. He is a uh, he is the portrait of a nineteen nineties goth. Yeah, early nineties, <laughs> late eighties. He looks like he looks like the kind of character you'd see in the Sandman comic books. Uh-huh. He's got this jet black hair. Um, he doesn't look like Edgar Wright at all. Like you're no. used to seeing Edgar Wright. And, you know, that's part of the strength of his performance, that he's so different. I mean, there's a yeah, lot yeah. of slapstick in the movie. Yeah, Simon Pegg's red hair is completely gone here. Like this. Yeah. I, I will go on about the, the slapstick comedy. The physical comedy is brilliant. He and mm-hmm. Nick Frost are fantastic physical comedians. Yes. Like, Gary King finally convinces all of his buddies to go out on this pub crawl. You know, relive the glory days with him. But And he, he, he kind of calls it the last hurrah. Like, this is it. Yeah. Definitely. And, that, and you get to know why he refers to it like that. And we sort of, and we sort of realize too. He's completely estranged from all these people. Mm-hmm. They don't know. They don't seem to know. He doesn't know them anymore. Like, and they, they, and they are all kind of surprised that he hasn't grown up at all. And it's, it, it actually disturbs them a little bit too. Uh, the and as they go on their pub crawl in this town, he finally convinces them all in like separate little scenes that were all really funny. Uh, and then they're finally back in their hometown, and all of a sudden we're in kind of a, a bizarre, almost invasion of the body snatchers scenario. Everyone yeah. seems different. Um, you know, but I I want to comment on that. I I think I think a, I think a few people aren't going to enjoy this as much as uh, Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz because unlike those two, this isn't really like this is not really as deliberate a parody of any specific genre. Uh, yeah, not yeah, not really. It's kind of all over the place. 
Like whereas whereas Hot Fuzz is clearly a joke, you know, and they even point out a that it's a joke parody. on things like, yeah, a loving parody of things like Bad Boys Two, and you know, and and Shaun of the Dead's parody is in the title. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- <laughs> this uses the this uses sort of the invasion of the body snatchers tropes, or you know, even even tropes of something like uh, the faculty. Yeah. I... But it doesn't. It like it doesn't. It's not as slavishly devoted to them. I can see why people would be uncomfortable with, you know, the sudden change in in the movie's story. Like, this whole invasion of the body snatchers thing seems to come from way out of left field. It seems but that's, to. But that's kind of that's the beauty of it, too, because, I mean, it's it's kind of revealed to us out of left field, too, with that. Yeah, subtly. Then that's the strength of the screenplay. And I mean, there, there's there's a really brutal, <laughs> almost accidental fight in a bathroom midway through the pub crawl, and now yeah. they realize there's all these robot people bleeding blue that are made to look like people that they've known or people in the town. Yes, or... and they have very like soft bodies. Yes. Um, also of note is the uh, action choreography was done by Brad Allen, who's done a few of the other. Uh, uh, Edgar Wright movies like Silent, I mean, uh, Sky Pilgrim, which had great action scenes. And some of you may know Brad Allen, some of you don't, but he was, he started out as kind of a martial arts actor. He was the short white Australian guy Jackie Chan fought in Gorgeous. He's a tremendous martial artist. And, um, and he's always said in interviews that he really wanted to be just an action choreographer. He's insanely quick in that, too. <laughs> Oh yeah, that, that like uh, kudos to Jackie because I, like some of his best fight scenes are ones where he gets totally schooled by the other fighter, and Gorgeous is one of them. I mean, he's just tremendous. So Alan Bradley James Allen, he really has, he really knows his way around an action sequence, and honestly, this movie has some of the most satisfying action sequences in the trilogy. Yeah. Um. He knows how to design an action scene for like regular guys. I do, yeah. You don't see Nick Frost doing Sammo Hung moves. That's just not going to happen. Like he builds, it's like he builds it around the actors very well. Nick Frost becomes a very convincing brawler in this, though. Like, yeah. He really uses his size. Yeah, well, it gives you a background that he was like a really good rugby player, so he was a pretty good athlete in his day. But he's you know, he's, he's heavy. He's heavy set. But he's not like acrobatic. Yeah. No, but it's but but when but when he's really laying into these these things that are increasingly noticing that they don't belong and they need to be replaced. Mm-hmm. It's it's really very well done. Yeah. Uh, the movie has actually I think a really good moral to it, which is something pretty much missing from every summer movie. I mean, this year in particular, uh, you could argue, you know, Pacific Rim, that's about teamwork and working together. And uh, The World's End, it's about being yourself and accepting the, you know, the flaws that are you. Well, see, I, but I also feel like it's an, it's an anti-nostalgia movie. It is. Um, it, it is too, yeah. It's It's sort of telling you that it's, that you you know you can keep living in the past, but you're not gonna, but you're not gonna grow as a person. 
Like that, like there comes like every other character in this story moved on before we even met them, mm-hmm. and and even by the end, Gary. I mean, there's there's a there's a sort of a silly uh, denouement to it all. Where, but even by the end, Gary has not really grown up. No, um, and that's actually that's what the aliens offer. The aliens offer permanent nostalgia. They offer Gary King to be his 17-year-old self forever in exchange for his body. And and, the, and they're going to just make him the most sanitary version of himself where... Yeah. Like, like the, the aliens in this movie have handed us all of our big technological advances. Oh, yeah, they're responsible they, for cell phones and Wi-Fi. And wireless, yeah. yeah. And, uh... And and you know and that they they want to replace us because they want to call they want to bring about galactic peace. Yes. Our, and anybody that anybody that doesn't fit that vision has to be replaced. Yeah, that was one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is where they they come to face the aliens or the robot existence and they're explaining to them and they talk the aliens. They they have a de- they have a pretty good debate with the aliens. Yeah, it's uh and I I'm, I'm reading here by the way that uh Bradley James Allen, also action designer for Pacific Rim, and also going to be choreo- uh, doing the choreography for Ant-Man with Edgar Wright. Well. So. Those, you know, Ant-Man's looking better and better. Ant-Man. Well, Pacific Rim, it was hard to see. I guess he designed the action scenes to be, you know, giant, clunky robots punching aliens exactly. or kaiju. Yeah, and there's there's only so I mean even, there there are limitations to that style of <laughs> action. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's something else I wanted to comment on with this with uh, with this, with um, the world's end, which is there's a really sly thing they do with this movie, where there's quite a few comments made here about how it's not just about people changing; it's about how towns change. And about how you how you can never really go home again, which is something you you know it's been said a billion times, but like mm-hmm. even in a globalization sort of sense, um, where every pub they go to has lost its local charm and essentially become the same Starbucksian type outfit. Yeah, the very first pub they go into has changed drastically, and then the next pub they go to on their crawl, it's I, I'm pretty sure they use the same set, which was the joke. Yeah. And it's pretty funny. But it, it gets the point across. And about how you know and th- there's just a lot of great things here. The the sort of messages about how a lot of us never really get over our high school traumas. Mhm. We're you know, we're still haunted by the same things even if we've grown as people. Um and also another you know, it it uses a Bond actor uh, in the same way that the same way that uh <laughs> Hot Fuzz used Timothy Dalton. Here we have Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, it makes me wish they had like Roger Moore for uh, Shaun of the Dead or something. Oh well, maybe an Ant Man will have a Bond actor. That's right. Maybe, maybe uh, Connery or Daniel Craig or yeah. Roger Moore will make an appearance. Maybe Edgar Wright should just do a Bond movie. <laughs> I'd be totally down something for that. Something totally different. Yeah. I mean, hey, Simon Pegg's already cut his teeth in the Mission Impossible films. Yeah, he could be another agent, or he, he could be their Q, or he could play like a bad guy. Oh, he'd be actually he'd be a great Q. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I love The World's End. Yes, it, 
it's another buy for me. I'm going to probably pick it up on Blu-ray at some point. Uh, I'll pick up the trilogy set. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the preferred way to do it. That's why I'm going to wait a little bit because yeah. I know it'll come. But I, it, it might even be, from a narrative standpoint, my favorite of the trilogy. Uh, it's hard to beat Shaun of the Dead. It's oh, it is. It is. I mean, it's it's hard to beat Hot Fuzz they're as well. They're all good it's, movies. Um, they're, yeah, they're all fantastic, but uh, I'm going to go with The World's End. As... Another solid trilogy where none of the characters or storylines connect. And, you know, I mean, and we talk about... that's That's sort of been a theme of all three films when you mentioned, you know, self-acceptance. Yeah. It's... Like, like it, all three of those movies sort of end with, it's okay just to kind of be a slob. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, both of those, well, the earlier ones, it was the Nick Frost character. They actually kind of reversed roles in uh, The World's End, which is a nice change of pace. I, I think I, I think Nick Frost said in an interview for this movie that he was glad that he finally got to act. So does that mean he was playing himself in <laughs> Shaun of the Dead? I'm pretty sure that's what's being implied. <laughs> All right then, like normally I'm a I'm a goofball slob. Oh, there is that great bit of slapstick he does in uh, World's End where he's drunk and he like walks through a glass door. It's just hilarious. <laughs> uh, there's there's a lot of really great scenes like that, and yeah, I'm I can't wait to see it again. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies this summer. Totally. Probably, you know, it'll be one of the best of the year, in my opinion. Yeah. We, we're going to do a, we're going to do a, uh, at the end of the year, we're doing a top third, a top 10 of the last 13 years for action and horror. That's correct. So stay tuned, uh, kiddo. Stay tuned. See if, see if any of these make it on our lists. Yeah. Hey, um, so we're going to move on. Uh, I'm going to talk about a movie I saw that you didn't see, which is kind of a rarity on this countdown. Yeah. I wanted um, to see it. I, I'll see it. I'll still see it. But it's uh, Adam Wingard's uh, new slasher film, You're Next. Again, technically finished in 2011, did not get released in theaters till 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't want to give too much away about this movie. Say, what's, if you can, what's what you liked without... Oh, I can, I can tell you exactly what works about this movie. Okay. And that is... Uh, it's smartly written, but mainly because... Of uh, this act, this Australian actress named Sharni Vinson playing a character named Aaron, mm-hmm. uh, and Aaron is probably the mo- the final girl that is has it has her shit the most together <laughs> that I've ever seen. From from the very first attack by the by the uh, the three animal masked assailants, she immediately knows how she's going to respond. It's it becomes Home Alone for adults. Hmm. Um, other characters are getting butchered left and right, and just the way that she retaliates almost instantly is a sight to behold. Um, you know, and it's it's actually explained in the story that she was she grew up on a survivalist compound. Uh, so she knows so all it's these a, booby trap techniques. Exactly, and she's and she's not afraid to get blood on her. She'll. She'll give as good as she gets, and she truly does. And that, and that really, to me, is what makes this movie special. It's just, it's great for once to to watch a horror movie 
where the main character doesn't do completely stupid things all the time and make you question their decisions. Like, everything she does makes perfect sense, and you roll with it. Mm. So I, I've just, I can't recommend it highly enough. I think it's a really uh, well-done picture, and, you know, if you're not a fan of a, if you are or are not a fan of a T. West, the director of House of the Devil, and... Uh, I didn't see House of the Devil. Uh... Or The Innkeepers, or... Uh, he is, he is a, you know, it's not saying, it's not spoiling too much to say he is an early victim in this movie. Playing a, playing a filmmaker that other people aren't taking too seriously. Oh, Ty West is in the movie. Yes. Oh. Yes, he's one of the, he's one of the early victims. Ah. Uh, um, I really and the, and the writer, and the writer of the film is one of the killers who, who has a fairly uh, hilarious thing happened to him that I won't spoil. I remember going to the theater and they had a trailer for that home invasion movie with Ethan Hawke, The Purge. And right after they had a trailer for You're Next and they looked very similar, you know, the brief trailers. And people started laughing in the theater. That's the problem I had, too. The movie had such an underwhelming marketing campaign that I almost didn't want to go see it. Um, and that's because I hated I hated The Strangers. Yeah. This, this movie tri- – the, the, the trailer for this movie looks like The Strangers. And the problem with that is that in The Strangers, that movie is essentially 90 minutes of peekaboo scares where one of the three bag – you know, one of the three bag-headed or masked villains – will pop their head through a window or around a corner just so that the audience can see them, but they're always just out of sight of the, you know, of their two victims. In this movie, if you see the villain, they're probably going to kill somebody on screen. <laughs> and if they're not killing, they're going to be killed by our final girl. Oh, right. <laughs> like, it's, it, it keeps, like, once that, once the pace of the killing begins, it doesn't really let up. Oh, right. So I, I can't so wait I, to see it. it. So I, I think it really does it very well. Uh, you know, I think Sharni Vinson um, has earned her Jamie Lee Curtis wings with this one. All right. So I, you know, Adam Wingard. I hadn't really known him before, except for things like uh, he did a couple. He did a segment in VHS, and a couple other things. He's a he's a young up and comer, and I'm I'm looking. For, you know, based on this one, I'm looking forward to seeing what else he does. Sounds great. So was this I, a know, British movie? No, it was. Oh, man, let me double check. For, he's not the director. Isn't British, right? No, no. For some reason, I thought this was a British film. No, it's um. Oh, hold on. Let me get his. Let me get his details. <laughs> I'm consulting IMDb, as all champions do, as all, all right. serious film reviewers do. And his and it just tells me that he's six foot four. <laughs> so <laughs> nothing scares uh, me. But I'm I'm pretty sure it's either American or Canadian. Okay. Oh, it's 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 American, USA. All right. Oh, he did uh, in, one of the ABCs of death. Yes, it was filmed in Missouri. Missouri. It was filmed in Missouri, and I like I said, I am a, I'm I'm quite a big fan. I think this is probably the best slasher movie I've seen in the last few years. That's quite a statement. Uh, 
So you know, other other than Pacific, you know, Pacific Rim, World's End, and this, I, I think that they, these are the best of the summer for me. All right. Well, you unfortunately have not seen the movie I'm about to mention, and that's, but I really want to. I think everybody with any interest in beautiful movies uh, owes himself to see uh, the Grandmaster. And now, th- this is a movie done by one of my favorite, favorite directors of all time, Wong Kar Wai. And it's a movie about Eat Man. Now, in the last five years, there's been like six Eat Man movies, and a TV series. Yeah, there's, there's a TV series that just started in Hong Kong, and now there's an Anthony Wong movie that's about to come out on DVD. And all of it being promoted as the man who taught Bruce Lee. Yeah, Bruce Lee had a bunch of martial arts teachers growing up. Eat Man was one of them. But uh, <laughs> the Grandmaster was something Wong Kar Wai has been wanting to do since about 1996. And uh, to have like, and to have his star that he uses most frequently, Tony Leung, play Eat Man. Mm. Uh, and he's made a beautiful film. What would I know Tony Leung from? You would know Tony Leung from Hard Boiled. He played the kind of undercover cop in that movie. He was also the undercover cop in Infernal Affairs. He's got a he's got a reputation as playing that. He's he's a little typecast. Uh, yeah, well, I guess it's because Hong Kong actors appear to work way more frequently or just on more projects per year than actors in America do. He's been in all sorts of martial arts films. He's been in a couple of Vietnamese movies. Um, I don't think he has really done a, an American film that I know of. I mean, he's done science fiction. He was in the live-action version of the anime Wicked City that Toy Hart, mm. I think, produced. Uh, Yuen Ping is in that also. And uh, speaking of Yuen Ping, he's the fight choreography, fight choreographer to the Grandmaster. And... Um, he makes very, very good use of actors who were not born martial artists like Donnie Yen or Jet Li. Donnie Yen played Ip Man in his two movies, and he's superb in those. Those are, uh, in my opinion, just classic modern martial arts films. Well, those are very standard martial arts films. Where a lot of a lot of kung fu movies, martial arts movies, what they try to do is like it's about this guy. He's got to be the best, or he is the best, or he's got to get revenge. This movie is not really about that. This movie is about martial arts as like a way of life, and like the w- the way two people go in and out of uh, just knowing each other through a couple of decades. And it's more similar to a movie like Doctor Zhivago than it is to like Donnie Yen's Eve Man film. If anyone's ever seen the David Lean, Dr. Zhivago film, I guess you kind of know what I'm saying. That's kind of an old reference to have. So what, I mean, like, what really separates this version from all the other Eat Man films out there? Well, one thing is the nature of the fight scenes. The fight scenes in this movie are very unique. They're not about just like a straight-up brawl. Like, I'm going to beat the crap out of you before you can beat up me. Um, the, the first act of the movie is about Tony Lung accepting a challenge from a, another master. He's an internal martial arts master. And in their duel, Tony, all Tony Lung has to do is break a cookie that he's holding in his hand. The master's holding in his own hand. And, it's, and he's, 
he's such a master of movement and balance that Tony Leung has to figure out a way to just touch the guy. And it's just brilliant cutting of like from their stances up to their torsos and the way it goes from uh, just the right cuts to, you know, regular motion and a little bit of slow motion. Like Wong Kar Wai is just a master of that. One of my favorite movies of all time is Fallen Angels that Wong Kar Wai did in the 90s. And that movie opens up with just some of the best cuts I've ever seen in a movie. And then it's just a woman walking up an escalator and you hear like this clop clop sound. Wong Kar Wai is a very, he's a sensuous director. I don't mean that like, in a, he's like, he makes sexy movies or something exactly. I mean that like, he's very into the, just the way something feels and the emotional response it triggers. And it's very potent in all of his works and the Grandmaster is no different. And that's something that you won't find in Eat Man, which as good as it is, it still is like a standard Kung Fu movie. Gotcha. Well, I mean, then I guess, you know, knowing that, and then, you know, and you mentioned how good his cuts are, how good his editing skills are. Yeah. Um, that that seems to make it all the bigger shame that uh, there was apparently a, this is the version in the theaters is apparently a different edit. It's a different edit. Um, it's a much, it's 20 something minutes shorter, maybe even like a half hour due to the, the Weinstein company bought it, bought the rights to it. And they are infamous <laughs> for re-editing uh, movies. And thank yes, God they, they didn't dub it or like change the sound effects and the soundtrack. The soundtrack, of course, is fantastic. And Wong Kar Wai, going on about that, he's, he's very unusual with a lot of Chinese filmmakers. Um, he's closer to like a French or American one because he uses a source soundtrack. And he even uses a Neo Morricone music in it. And you would never think that the theme to uh, Once Upon a Time in America would work so well in a martial arts film, but it does. Oh, really? That's used? Yeah. Uh, I think Deborah's theme. I, I heard it, and then I was like, that sounds very familiar, and then I saw in the credits. And uh, But going on about the American cut, it's I know it adds in a few scenes that aren't in the Chinese version, but from what I understand, they're not even like that great of additions to the people who've seen both. I know a Blu-ray just came out in uh, Asia, and it's Region A, which means it'll play on... Uh, Blu-ray players in this country or this region in the U.S. It may be worth looking into, but I, I think that a, a domestic release will come out soon enough. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film, and it's so nice to see uh, martial arts styles which aren't which are rarely shown on screen. And that's another thing Wong Kar Wai wanted to do. You see internal martial arts like Xing Yi, Bagua Zhang, and Bai Ji. You never see those usually in movies. Usually it's like a hard style. And Wing Chun, like, that's, it was kind of like a novelty. I, I think still the best Wing Chun movie ever made is Prod Prodigal Son. Uh, Samuel Hong directed that. A movie that we'll definitely cover in a future episode. Yes, absolutely. That, that one, they really get down to, like, the philosophy of, like, the fighting and stuff. Uh, the Grandmaster is about the philosophy of just the life. And also of note is that I think the original title they were going with was the Grandmasters, plural. Okay. Because the movie is about his his dealings with a woman who played by Zhang Ziyi, and she is a kung fu master herself. She's the daughter of one, and and she's prominently featured on the poster too. She's she's actually has about as much screen time as Tony Lung, 
And in fact, like the last third of the movie is probably more about her, at least in the American cut. And her character is fascinating, too. So do you think that removal of that S is just a marketing ploy to get people to go, oh, it's Eat Man. I know who Eat Man is because I've seen that yeah, other movie. Yeah, I really think so. Um, like, the American cut does things like, you'll hear Tony Lung narrate, you go, in 1950, I moved to Hong Kong. And then the American cut added, like, title cards to everything. And then, <laughs> as he's saying it's 1950 in Hong Kong, it just says at the bottom, 1950 Hong Kong. <laughs> It's not even done in an ironic way, like in, um, I don't know if you ever saw Casino, but uh, Joe Pesci yeah. goes, back home years ago, and then at the bottom of the screen it says, back home years ago. Like That, that, that kind of thing's kind of funny. Like they can't trust you to know what, that he's talking about where, what we're seeing. Yeah, and when it introduces like all these different kung fu masters that Tony Lung meets, or Yip Man meets, it tells you who they are and the style they practice. Like I, I can accept that a little bit. Yeah, maybe people aren't as well-versed in their kung fu yeah. history. A common theme that runs through all of Wong Kar Wai's films, every single one of them, is unrequited love. And that's there with Tony Lung and Zhang Ziyi in the movie. But from what I understand in the American cut, a lot of that was trimmed back. And so their connection isn't as strong as it could have been, but it still was for me. So that might be like part Wong Kar Wai fanboy. I might have put that Steve. disclaimer out there. Hey, you know, I put that out there with Del Toro. You can do the same with Carwai. Yeah. I, I, I really can't wait for uh, the Blu-ray to come out with the Chinese cut, uh, at least domestically. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. You're selling me on it. Yeah. Uh, oh, let me just check, though. You said it's a Weinstein edit, so I just have to check. They don't play Carl Douglas's Kung Fu fighting at the end of this one, do they? No, they don't. Thank God. <laughs> I will say, like, as far as, like, fight scene to fight scene goes, the Donnie Yen Eat Man films are better. Okay. But as a movie, it's on... The Grandmaster is on a different plane of existence. I mean, I would, I would guess... I would venture to ask, then, as a movie about martial arts philosophy... Yeah. Is this, is this the better movie of the, you know, the two? Oh, absolutely. And see, the Donnie and Eat Man movie kept inventing stuff that never really happened in history. Like, there were all these Japanese fighters he had to fight one at, or all, all at once. And it, it's a lot of hyperbole. And I'm sure that may be there in the Wong Kar Wai film, but it's more internal. All right, then. Yeah. I, well, you know, uh, so you so definitely a movie you 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 think everyone should go out and buy yes. or see, yes. no matter what they yes. have to do. And your especially your favorite if you like movie? martial arts movies, right. yeah. So that is, that is your number one of the summer. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we we have struggled every time we do one of these episodes to figure out how to close the episode. And that's still something we haven't really nailed down yet. And it's something that we're going to develop as we go on. But this time we actually know ahead of time, what movie we're going to watch for next week. So, and, uh, you know, I think I think with this one, you know, we've done movies where, you know, we had gun violence with The Last Stand and sort of a cheesy sci-fi action movie with They Live. Or a horror and... movie, horror action, demons. Yes. And demons. And so, but, you know, talking about the Grand Master there, I think people could really get a taste for your passion for kung fu, which is 
if we're being honest, that's kind of the whole reason we started this show was that you you are an encyclopedic reservoir of kung fu knowledge. Uh, you know, I I am an enthusiast, but I'm nowhere near that level. And I so we we decided it was high time to tackle a kung fu movie. And we're going to be conquering or tackling one of the supreme martial arts films, in my opinion, and that's Fist of Legend with Jet Li. Hmm. Classic. An absolute classic. Um, And we're telling you guys this ahead of time so that you can find any means necessary to go see that movie if you haven't seen it already. Is it on streaming? I, you know, I don't know. Might, I might don't be. believe so. I think uh, it was, at least for a while, some of the Dragon Dynasty titles. I.e. The, the DVD company. It is on a nice uh, DVD and Blu-ray now, so... Of, uh, by, by Dragon Dynasty, yeah. yeah. And the, the now-defunct Dragon Dynasty. But... Uh, sadly, yes. Sad to confirm that neither Fist of Legend or the Bruce Lee movie that inspired it, Fist of Fury, are on streaming at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. Fist of Legend is a remake of a Bruce Lee film, and it's a lot better. Ooh. Which may be blasphemous to some people, but Bruce was. Oh, we're the... gonna, we're gonna, yeah. we'll get to your Bruce Lee blasphemies at some point. I'm sure. I love Bruce Lee. I probably love him more than most of the people listening. But it's he did not make a movie as good as Fist of Legend. Fist of Legend is as close as you're going to come to. Uh, I I think it's at, at the very least Jet Li's best film. Uh, I I think it is his best film. I really he's, do. He's he's never he's never going to top that. No. And uh, so we're thrilled to talk about it. We hope that you guys can find a way to see it. Uh, we're planning to record it next week. It should be out in two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. So you have plenty of time from the time you hear this to go find it, watch it, and then know what the heck we're talking about when we really get down to the nitty-gritty details. Because my man here, Bert, is going to hit you with so many facts about the behind the scenes <laughs> and what's and the fighting styles that you're going to want to know, <laughs> at the very least, what scenes he's even talking about. To get the best leg up on it. And if not, come listen to our enthusiasm and maybe we'll convince you to go find it. Yeah, it, it's a great movie. It's a classic. You owe yourselves to see it. You'll be entertained and it'll dazzle you with some of, some of the best fight scenes ever filmed. All right. Well, I guess that does it. Yeah. And probably uh, our longest episode ever, at least yet. <laughs> at least yet, yeah. Wait until we really get into... I don't know. Who knows how long Fist of Legend will be once we really get into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. This is Bloodbath and Beyond. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Yeah, thank you for listening. Good night. And scene. <laughs>